0: Let me invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 3. I'll be reading verses 7 through 31, Judges 3, 7 through 31. Before we hear God's Word read, let's go again to Him humbly in prayer. Our God, You are gracious to us, and we depend again on this grace, the grace of sight. We pray that we would see clearly, your redemption, our Christ, and what you expect of us as new creatures in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Judges 3, verses 7 through 31. Hear now the word of God. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of Cushan-Rishathaim king of Mesopotamia and the people of Israel served Cushan-Rishathaim 8 years but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them Othniel the son of Kenaz Caleb's younger brother the spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel he went out to war and the Lord gave Cushan-Rishathaim king of Mesopotamia into his hand and his hand prevailed over Cushan-Rishathaim, so the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel the son of Kenaz died. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon the king of Moab against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon the king of Moab eighteen years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had Finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. He had escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down "'after him and seized the forge of the Jordan "'against the Moabites "'and did not allow anyone to pass over. "'And they killed at that time "'about 10,000 of the Moabites, "'all strong, able-bodied men. "'Not a man escaped. "'So Moab was subdued that day "'under the hand of Israel "'and the land had rest for 80 years. "'After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, "'who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. "'And he also saved Israel.' Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. One of the many parent pitfalls of both new and seasoned parents is this idea that instruction necessarily leads to obedience. If we just teach our children, they will obey. Without a doubt, the scripture tells us to teach our child the way that he should go, and he will not depart from it. The book of Proverbs is one large and wise instruction manual for living. But we minimize our children's sin when we think that if we just teach them, if we just post the rules on that neatly crafted poster board and even laminate it, Then the kids will hear the rules, see the rules, and make perfect application all the time to the rules. Teachers also face this problem throughout the year. They lay down the rules at the start of the year. First week really is about laying down expectations. And here we are in February, a whole semester has gone by, and a teacher, perhaps frustrated, says to his students, didn't I already tell you? how to behave in this class. Why are you disobeying the rules? Did I not tell you these rules? And if the students were honest, they'd say, yeah, you did tell us the rules, we just don't care. Bosses as well suffer from this mindset, but perhaps are less forgiving than parents and teachers. You didn't follow the clear protocol, and so you are fired. Sin abounds, And for relationships, in order for them to continue, compassionate grace must abound even more. Our Father in heaven is not self-deceived. He does not think that his people, as long as they are told or by the virtue of being told once, that they will never veer off the path of instruction. Our God is all-wise. He knows better than that. The downward spiral and cycle of sin begins here in Judges. The question for Israel is what will their Father in heaven do? And the question for us is this how he how, is this how he's going to deal with us today? How will he deal with us who sin, who suffer because of our own sin, and because of the sins of the world? And cry out, what response will he make for us? Shall grace? abound for us, even more than our abundant sins. And we see in this text that the Lord compassionately raises spirited men to deliver his people from the enemy and usher them into rest. With the first three judges, I want to highlight a redemptive necessity for all of us. Something that we must have if we are to have redemption and there's a lot that can be said about every one of these judges. And if you think Shamgar got the short end of the stick, remember two things. He gets one verse in this text. But also, I preached on Shamgar about a year and a half ago. So there's a whole sermon on him, you can listen to. We begin with Othniel, verse 10. Again, it says, The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Kushan rishathaim king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Kushan rishathaim And so, in Athaniel's case, the Lord impresses upon his people the necessity of the spirit—spirit spirit here who is needed for war. You'll remember from last Lord's Day or two that God is testing his people that they might learn war, that they might be engaged in the battle against the world, against the flesh, against the enemy. And so the Spirit is necessary for that battle. Spirit is necessary for the raising up of men. We see men involved in this, in this text, the men of Israel, the man Othniel, and the man, the king of Mesopotamia. But if good is going to come upon the people of God, it must come... Ultimately, from the Spirit. We've already read the summary cycle of the book of Judges, and now we then turn to its grievous episodes. We remember from a previous text how Othniel was raised by the Lord. He courageously captured Debir for Caleb, and he won Caleb's daughter, Aksa. And he was likely in his mid-fifties at that time. And so now, 30 years later, he has called upon to aid Israel again. In his finest hour, really, as judge, as, as an aged man, judging Israel. Israel had again returned to his sinful, stubborn ways. We see in this text that Israel had forgotten God. Israel had decided to serve the Baals and the Asheroth. The Asheroth here are the sacred groves, those wooden columns where the Canaanite goddess Ashtoreth was to be worshipped. And so again we see that Israel again pursued false worship. Oh how prone Israel was to wander, to leave the God that loves them. And because of this renewed adultery, the loyal Lord, out of a pure covenantal jealousy, because He is faithful to His people, because He is faithful to His word, He sells Israel into the hands of the king of Mesopotamia, Cushan-Rishathaim. Now, this name, Cushan-Rishathaim, is not a name given by Mama Cushan. Okay, this is a name given by the author of Judges the ultimate author, God himself, because the name means double wickedness. Certainly his mom is not going to call him double wickedness. Come here, double wickedness. Well, that would be true of anyone born in Adam. This is a divine pun. The word Mesopotamia is translated uh, or is transliterated in other versions as Aram Naharaim, Naharaim and Rishathaim, very similar sounding. Okay, So what's going on here is uh, this word Mesopotamia refers to Syria of the two rivers, the land of Syria between the Tigris River and the Euphrates River. What is going on here is that we're saying this is double the evil from double the river. What's communicating here is that Israel felt keenly the oppression of this Mesopotamian king, Kushan. He was really giving it to them. They were truly, sorely oppressed. He was a wicked man, not just once wicked, but twice wicked. And so they needed deliverance. They cry out. And considering Israel's cries more than Israel's lasting repentance, the Lord graciously acts. The Spirit of the Lord was upon Othniel. The Lord raised up this judge for this time. Othniel didn't just pop into the picture, fully equipped, without any kind of prior preparation. He was grown by God. God had prepared him for this eventual ministry of judgeship. These judges are made. One man summarizes the experiences that Othniel must have gone through. He was a covenant child in Egypt. He was witness to the mighty hand of God at the Red Sea. He wandered the wilderness with the rest of the Israelites. He saw Israel backsliding. He conquered the Anakim, the giants in the south. He has quite the experience to prepare him for this time of deliverance. Without the Spirit of the Lord, Othniel would have been as faithless as the rest. There but for the Spirit of God go we as well. If we did not have the Spirit, we would follow the way of the world. We would give in to our sin time and again. If we did not have the Spirit to curb our sinfulness, to convict us of our sin... To say, no, that's not the way of righteousness, that's the way of destruction. Cause our eyes to see the glory of Christ, the wickedness of our sins. But with the Spirit of the Lord upon Othniel, he could serve God in this, his finest hour. Having strength from God, even in his older age. And so with the Spirit of God, so go we. With God's Spirit, we can go to battle. The Spirit of the Lord is necessary for our ongoing growth, our fight against evil, and it's all of its manifestations. The Spirit of the Lord, this Spirit of the Lord, is the Spirit of the Christ, the Spirit of the angel of the Lord. This is clear in later testimony of Scripture. Isaiah 11, verse 1, for instance, says, "...that the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon the Messiah." And so with faithfulness, with wisdom, and with righteousness, the Messiah shall govern and judge. And Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, the Spirit of the Lord will be upon him, upon the Christ, because the Lord has anointed him. He will proclaim liberty to the captives. He will proclaim good news to the poor. He will comfort those who mourn. This is Christ. We know this is Christ. Christ himself uses that text to refer to himself in Luke 4:18 18, 18 and 19. When he was preaching in Nazareth, he's saying, "The scripture has been fulfilled in your presence today. I am the anointed one. I'm the one who has the spirit. The spirit descended upon me at my baptism. So come, he says come and be governed come and be judged and be judged with faithfulness to be judged with wisdom and come and be comforted you who mourn mourn over your sin come and receive the comfort that comes from me come and be healed john 3:34 it says that the father loved the son so much that he gave, he gave him the Spirit without measure. The Son doesn't have just a little bit of the Spirit. Certainly the Spirit was upon Othniel, but he was without measure upon the Son. Certainly the Spirit is upon Ehud, but not like the Spirit was upon the Son. Surely the Spirit was on Shamgar for that brief time as he was taking down those Philistines. But the Spirit's presence on any of those men and all the others in this book does not compare to his presence, his abiding on the Son himself. And the Son loved us so much that when he ascended, he sent his Spirit upon us. He gifted his church with this spirit because he knew how necessary this spirit is to us. It was the Spirit of the Lord who worked on St. Augustine to recover the doctrines of grace. It was the Spirit of the Lord who, who used Wycliffe and Tyndale to give us the Bible in English. It was the Spirit of the Lord who caused courage in Martin Luther to nail those 95 theses on that castle door. It was the Spirit of the Lord who raised Knox to reform and revitalize Scotland. It was the Spirit of the Lord who took Calvin out of his library to make Geneva, as Knox would say later on, the most perfect school of Christ. It was the Spirit of the Lord who used Darcy's scroll to recover the holiness of God in our age. It was the Spirit of the Lord who used Pastor Jim Braden to bring Cross Creek into the reformed faith and to minister to this church for over 20 years. It was the Spirit of the Lord who, who used Pastor Owen to keep reforming, to build on that foundation for nine more years. Always reforming. You turn all these men upside down, you look at their feet, It says it's stamped on these feet of clay, made in heaven. A product of the spirit, and the spirit is not just for these men. That same spirit is upon you. It is this spirit who hasn't merely come upon us in this new covenant age, but he indwells us. He has decided to inhabit us—unworthy, filthy, wicked, sick, imperfect creatures. Not just temporarily to to pitch his tent in our hearts, but to permeate as he did that tabernacle that prevented Moses from entering, as I overheard some of the students learning this morning. Oh, but to, to fully inhabit the hearts of people who desperately need the Spirit. He is our first fruits, He is our seal of redemption. And as adopted sons and daughters, by his Spirit we cry out, Abba, Father. In our weakness we are upheld by the Spirit and so we can groan and the Spirit intercedes for us. It is by the Spirit that we put to death fleshly deeds and so we die. It is also by the Spirit that we are led and so we live. Cry out to the Father whose compassionate heart loves you eternally. Cry out to the Son whose bloodied life was given for you. But cry out also to the Spirit for more grace, for more growth. You cannot live without Him. The Spirit is necessary for godly men. But we see also in, in the next section that strength, Is necessary for even unjust men. As we turn our attention to the story of Ehud and Eglon, we need to know that everything in the previous section applies here as well that the Lord raised up Ehud like he had raised up Othniel. Without the Spirit, there would be no Ehud, there would be no Shamgar. We see in verse 12 there is strength given to enemies. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. If our enemy is to have any harmful effect on us, though it will be temporary, this still must come from God. We just saw that the Lord sold Israel into the hand of double wickedness. It must have been hard to be oppressed for those eight years. In Ehud's day. However, we see an engorged eglon sitting on Israel for 18 years. And as as anyone might know, when a man that large is on you, you need help to get out. You know, when you are a Princess Leia stuck to a job of the hut, you're gonna need a a Han Solo or a Luke Skywalker to help you out. And this story is exciting. It's enthralling. But this exciting tale isn't primarily God's way of tipping his hat to those preteens who are obsessed with bodily fluids. Not doing that. But at the same time, God's not being excessive. He's not being needlessly graphic here. It's not that the author has somehow gone overboard by including things about dung and that Eglon is a very fat man. It's not like God just overlooked what the author had written. So, I guess that's just the Bible then. Or we can have a little error in there. No, every single detail, every single word, every clause, every verse, every chapter, every book is fully inspired by the Spirit. It is clear that because of Israel's return to evil, more discipline is needed. It was the Lord who strengthened Eglon against Israel. Eglon couldn't even get himself out of bed. He was too large. He needed that divine push to oppress. And sometimes, what this means is sometimes God uses the big man on campus to humble the freshman. Sometimes God uses his and our enemy to discipline us. It even says in the beginning and at the end of verse 12 that Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Hundreds of years later, Israel in the north would experience this as well. If you, can, if you want, you can read Isaiah 10 and 11 for this account. The king of Assyria is viewed as an axe who's chopping his way through the forest, which is Israel. The Lord strengthened the Assyrian rod of iron that he might sharpen his dull Israel. Ineffective sword. The Lord will allow us at times to feel the strength of our own idols. If by feeling empty, we will stop bowing before him, seeking meaning, seeking rest, refuge, identity, power, Whatever we are seeking, the Lord will grant Satan some time with Job to see where his true trust lies. The, Lord, the, the world was in the power of the evil one, and this evil one is a force to be reckoned with. Contrary to however people depict Satan today. In one popular Christian show has used the devil, at least this humorous depiction of the devil, to advertise their show. using reverse psychology, trying to convince the viewers, after laying out the, the times, the days when you can watch the show, the devil says, but you're, they won't be able to watch the show if there's no internet. And so what does he do is he looks at this cord that's plugged in, and he, so proud of himself, goes to the cord and unplugs it, and the camera reveals that it was just plugged. It was, it was the cord for a lamp. Okay, So he thought, no internet, no viewing, but it's just a lamp, showing Satan to be, you know, a goofball, a silly, incompetent, demonic power. That's not, that's not the devil. And I suppose that's exactly the kind of picture he would be happy with us Christians painting of him, just so innocent, mild. No, the Lord allowed the Corinthians to be dazzled by the apparent light through these super-apostles. As we saw last time as well, he even allowed this messenger of Satan to harass him, to humble him. Surely the devil was a force to be reckoned with. Of course, there's a greater force, a greater person, Jesus Christ, who plundered the strong man. Just possess the strong men of the earthly realm. And so we can always humbly face trials of all kinds, even when, and especially when we do not understand, we don't understand all of all the pieces. And so, yes, there is strength for the enemies for a time. But be assured, God strengthens and then slashes the enemy. And that's what we have here in the story of Ehud. But we saw that with Othniel, after eight years, Cushan of double evil was taken down. He didn't reign forevermore. In God's complete chronology here in the story of Ehud, after 18 years, the gross Eglon got his as well. Eglon's first mistake was messing with the Israelites, the apple of God's eyes. His second mistake was joining with other ites, the Ammonites, the Amalekites. These whose history of conflict with Israel God has assured will come to an end, and not with them on top, but with Israel as the victor. gone's third mistake was setting up camp in the city of Palms, which some of you might know as Jericho, that symbol of victory over God's enemies. And remember, Joshua cursed anyone who would try to rebuild. And so the Lord raised up Ehud. A lefty from Benjamin. And Benjamin means son of my right hand. So here we have a lefty in a tribe of righties. Sometimes God is unorthodox in his saving ways. And he takes advantage of the annual giving of tribute to Eglon. He is, as Paul would be many years later, he is provoked by the Moabite idols permeating the promised land, and he has prepared a sword just for Eglon. And in a private audience with the king, Ahud raises his right hand, and with his left, he takes that double-edged sword from his right thigh, and he plunges that dagger into Eglon's belly. It lodged in Eglon's gargantuan waist, and out came a ton of dung. The great Moabite lord lies dead on the floor, to the glory of God, whose infinite waste knows no bounds. We must not be embarrassed as Eglon's servants would be. This is a high point in the story. This is evidence of the glory of God. This is not something to be ashamed about. This is something to revel in. Certainly the Israelites, as they would hear this story and they would retell it generation after generation, would delight in what God had done for the people by taking down a really big enemy. And God uses even feces for his glory, and I mean that irreverently. I mean that very seriously here. There's a reason this is here. He didn't let He didn't let Eglon's waste go to waste. He works it out here so that Eglon's servants thought that he was relieving himself. Thought that he was either having a hard time at it or just had a lot to get rid of, but it didn't matter. They didn't want to bother him. Why would anyone want to bother someone using the bathroom? And so they waited as long as they could wait until they got embarrassed. And it was through that embarrassment that God allowed a way of escape for Ehud. And perhaps even quite grossly through Eglon's own personal toilet. And so Ehud gets out. The servants don't take him down. He leaves and he gets all of his other men. And so then 10,000 other strong, abled, bodied men are vanquished. It's a victory. It's a joyous opportunity for God's people. God delivered them out of the hand of Eglon. The bigger the enemy, the bigger the fall. And the greater the display of the glory of God. The display of God's bigness. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Shall the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? Are the Philistines really any match for an ox goad? Is Sisera's skull really a threat to a tent peg? What is Goliath compared to two small, smooth stones when they're thrown with the force and the accuracy of God Almighty? Our flesh's mistake, dear ones, is messing with us, the apple of God's eye. The pagan nation's mistake is raging against the king overall, the king who sits in the heavens and laughs. The devil's mistake is in thinking that our father's discipline of us is evidence of the devil's victory. When in reality, it is a sign of our legitimacy as sons and daughters, it is a sign of God's unending love for us. Death's mistake was in thinking that his sting would last forever. There's a power that the world knows nothing of. It is the power of the blood of Christ. When shed looks weak, but is truly glorious. It is truly effectual. It is truly cleansing us from all our sin. It is truly, when painted on his sword as King Judge, vanquishing all his and our enemies. There's the power the world knows nothing of. It is this power of the blood of Christ. It is the power of the word of the risen Christ. Calvin says, read Cicero, read Plato, read Aristotle, or any other of that class. You will, I admit, feel wonderfully allured, delighted, moved, enchanted. But, turn from them to the reading of the sacred volume, and whether you will it or not, it will so powerfully affect you, so pierce your heart, so work its way into your very marrow. The power of the orators and philosophers will almost disappear. In this new covenant age, we don't use the physical sword. That's one Difference between judges and today. Peter learned that lesson when he tried to cut off Malchus's ear. Jesus said, No, that's not, that's not what we're doing. That's not how we fight. You don't take up your physical sword and start conquering unbelievers. We have spiritual enemies. And spiritual enemies, yes, we even take on flesh, but we don't use a physical sword. It doesn't mean that we are weaponless. It doesn't mean that we are even swordless. We have, of course, the sword of the Spirit. We have the Word of God that cuts deeply, that changes hearts, that, that conquers unbelievers and graciously even subdues them to himself and saves them by the power of the Word, by the ministry of the Spirit. That is what God's Word does. Resting in the work of Christ, being daily renewed from the Spirit of Christ. Let us take his dagger to the belly of our sins. Let us take a tent peg to the skull of our idols. Let us take the ox goad to the worldly Philistines that want to take us, the ark of God, back for their gain. Let us take the rock of the Word of God to break off our sinful edges. Let us turn always to the Word of God, the Spirit of God, our Christ. The needed spirit gives us needed victory, that we might have much needed rest. Israel cries out to the Lord because of her pain. If Israel cries out to the Lord from a right spirit, if she's truly repentant, then it is admittedly a weak spirit, as we see her over and again returning to her own ways. And yet, at the same time, the Lord is gracious to pity even our weak cries. One man says, "Where well, the Lord sees only a spark of repentance and improvement, as soon as the poor cry to Him, He has compassion with their need and sends help and deliverance." What does the word say? But that a bruised reed he will not quench. A smoking flax, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. A faint muffled cry of a sheep under the weight of a wolf will call down angelic trumpets of triumph for the glory of the angel of the Lord and for the rest of his sheep. Is that where you're at at this point in your life? You feel the weight of your sin Or you feel the burden of the cares of the world weighing down on you? And maybe the only thing you can do, muffled, is cry, help. I'm not very strong, Lord. I'm weak. And I can barely get the word out of my mouth. And the Lord raises a deliverer, has raised a deliverer. Because he knows you can't do it. He knows you need someone much bigger than yourself. And he is gracious, compassionate enough to provide that one. Christ, our judge, kills our enemies for our rest. Othniel was used by God to give Israel a rest for 40 years. Ehud was used to double that rest for 80 years. No time was given in the case of Shamgar, but surely the Israelites had rest from those 600 Philistines for that time. God cares more for our rest than we do. God, in fact, insists on it. Now, Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary says, there is no need to fly off to heaven at this point. What he's getting at here is that some of us might be too quick to go all Puritan on this verse and spiritualize it to say it means only heavenly rest. But you have to remember, the Lord here gave the land rest. This is a this is real earth. And we recall that the promised land was a type of, of a one-day, future, whole earth rest, of new heavens and new earth. And we even submit to our governing authorities that we might lead a quiet and peaceful life here on earth. Our nation has known relative rest and peace in our history. And for these periods, we can thank our Lord. And even now, we can praise God that we do not face some of the hot physical persecution that others face. Or, if we're reading Providence rightly, maybe God is even using our prosperity for our discipline. But that's a whole other sermon. Surely, this land that we love needs a revival from the Lord, the Lord who is a spirit. And so we pray that God would give this nation a repentance that leads to rest, We fall on the other side of the ditch if we do not see the spiritual meaning here as well. The physical rest is a picture of rest that our souls know in part, but one day will know in full. Forty years of rest is good. It's just not enough. Eighty years of rest, even better. It's still not enough. Let us not be satisfied with forty years of rest or eighty years of rest. Eternal rest. That's what our hearts that wander, that are restless, cry out for. So we cry with a gust and our hearts are restless until we find rest in thee, O God. And what does Christ do when he hears that muffled cry for rest? He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you the rest that comes with your justification. I will declare you righteous. The, the, the judge of all the earth will declare you righteous because of my righteousness. And I will give you rest one day in the new heavens and the new earth. I will even raise your body from the dead. Your soul and body will be reunited. And there will be nothing like your new existence. So I will give you the rest of your ultimate glorification. But even now, there, is, there are glimmers, there's anticipations in our own sanctification of this rest because of the Spirit who indwells us. And so as we lay our sins at the cross of Christ, as we cast our sorrowful burdens on our Father in heaven, He cares for us and He gives us rest for the day. Our God has given us his necessary spirit, his necessary strength, and a necessary rest. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God, again, you who abound in steadfast love and forgiveness, you are compassionate towards us, and we do not deserve that compassion. You are gracious. We don't need that grace. We don't... um, deserve that grace. You are merciful, and we don't deserve that mercy. We are thankful that you still give it to us, that you are committed to us, that you have given us your spirit, you have given us divine strength, you have given us the rest that our souls require. We pray that you would today and every day transform us even more and more into the image of our beloved Christ.